Welcome to this special edition of the Let's Be Honest podcast. I want to thank everyone for tuning in. And uh, as you guys know, I promised you that this was going to be something special. It is Black History Month this month, and we wanted to do something a little bit different. So a lot of people have have known for years that there has been a lot of rumors, a lot of things online, um, documentaries, films that have been made about assassination attempts and assassinations of some of the world's most prominent leaders, JFK being one of the most popular ones. And uh, as you look into the 60s during the civil rights era, you'll notice that there were uh, a lot of assassinations that occurred um, with leaders, one also being Dr. Martin Luther King. And so I wanted to explore that a little bit and research and find out what really happened and who really killed Dr. Martin Luther King. So after I researched it, I am proud to announce that we actually have a special guest in the Styles Boss studio, and his name is Mr. Stuart Wexler. Mr. Wexler is actually the uh, co-author of Killing King, Racial Terrorist, James Earl Ray, and the Plot to Assassinate Martin Luther King Jr., he is also um, has long been considered one of the top investigative researchers in domestic terrorism and radical religious activities. His books include Awful Grace of God and America's Secret Jihad. His groundbreaking work on forensics and historical crimes has been featured on NBC News, the Boston Globe, Newsweek, the Daily Beast, USA Today, and the Clarion Ledger. Um, he resides in, uh, from my understanding, he resides in Jersey. And he also won the prestigious James Madison Teachers Fellowship in 2010. Mr. Wexler, thank you for coming on the Let's Be Honest podcast, this special edition of Who Done It. And uh, I'm glad you can come on and discuss this this whole story. How are you today? I'm well. How are you? I'm doing great. I'm doing great. Let's talk to our listeners. How did you get into investigative uh, reporting and research? How did you get into this whole this whole thing? Well, I've been doing this kind of stuff over 25 years now. I've been doing it since I was in high school. Okay. And really where it first started, sort of historical investigation, detective work, was with the JFK assassination. And that's sort of my original focus and interest, but it's extended well outward from there, uh, over the last two decades, especially over the last 15 years, into issues involving domestic religious terrorism and some of the other, and most notably Martin Luther King's assassination, but other racial murders that occurred in the 50s and 60s and beyond. Okay, okay. It's interesting you mentioned uh, you started with the JFK assassination. I think most people uh, know that one prominently as the most um, popular one, uh, November 22nd, 1963. And I really, my parents instilled in me a lot about history. So um, as I indicated, when you and I were communicating via email, I, I'm probably one of the only people, or you, you probably have, or, or there are other people out there like us that have, war- uh, have actually read all of the uh, Warren Commission's report on the assassination of JFK. Um, and because my mom and dad lived during that time, you know, I remember um, asking my, my parents, hey, you know, what was it like that day? And they just talked about how sad it was. And um, they remember when Oswald got shot. I'll never forget my mom saying, 
she said uh, her and her dad, her and my dad were sitting at the table. And back in the day, I guess they used to have a, a like a little black and white TV, and they would sit it at the you know at the dining table, uh, dining room table. And uh, she said um, she remembers when uh, Ruby shot Oswald. My dad turned to her and said, "Well, damn, he just shot him." And so you know that to me, you know that I'd see that picture that they always show of you know Ruby uh, shooting shooting him uh, as he's coming down the police um, exit as, you know, a very, you know, one of those historical pictures. So, um, and then as I got older, I was just fascinated with it, probably very much like you. And I come to realize in this day and time that um, just in researching and looking at different things, you know, the government had a part in, in their hands in a lot of things back in the 60s. And I don't think it was a lot of coincidence that there were a number of assassinations that occurred back then. So, um I appreciate, you know, your, your expertise and I'm just going to get down to right to the question and I'm going to let you go ahead. Who really killed Martin Luther King and why? So big picture, Mm -hmm. it was the, the, the sponsors were a network of radical religious racists who outsource the plot to criminals. And we can get into it as we go further. It didn't actually go exactly, we don't believe it went exactly according to their desired plan, but none of it would have happened had it not been for, in fact, a multi-year effort by a group of, a network of, and a little understood network of radical religious racists who were just dead set at killing King in an effort to fulfill their sort of warped religious prophecy. Okay. Now, correct me if I'm wrong. Now, this is um, when he was assassinated, and I think my I have my historical facts correct. This was after Selma. Um, King, correct. the civil rights bill, had the civil rights bill been enacted, had Johnson enacted that bill, uh, during that time, I believe he, yes. he had. So, so the uh, so Civil Rights Act is 1964. Mm-hmm. The Voting Rights Act is 1965. Okay. What a lot of people don't understand is that both of those bills almost exclusively benefited the African American community only in the South. Hmm. So, if you were so so African Americans could already vote in the North. Okay. And and racism in the North wasn't done by way of uh, city codes and municipal codes. It was done de facto. It was done by, by people. And in many ways, it was just as, if not worse. But it wasn't done by way of black bathroom, white bathroom. It was done, you just knew that when you go swimming, you don't swim near where the white people swim because you might wind up beaten up by the end of the day. And, and that's how it was in the North. And, and that's really important to understand. I'm glad you brought it up because a lot of the agitation that you saw in America's urban communities was a function of the fact that there was still huge economic problems and structural racist problems. Heck, I mean, there's still some now, obviously, but right. then they were pronounced. And so what you were dealing with was a group of people outside of the South 
and some inside, but outside especially, who did not benefit from the civil rights movement, certainly not immediately. And, and the end result of that is that uh, you had growing frustration and agitation in those communities in an environment where the entire country was kind of combustible because of the Vietnam War, mm-hmm. because uh, uh, social and cultural movements on college campuses and because of the issues of race for more than just African-Americans, for Hispanics, eventually even for gay Americans. All of this, it was just a period of great agitation. I call, I tell my students, I call the period from 1964 to 1974 the age of social upheaval. And that's really important to understand because the people who we target as being the sponsors of the King Assassination that was fulfilling their religious prophecies in their own minds. And, and you know, if you were alive at that time, and you were somebody who believed that the end of the world was going to be a race war, mm-hmm. and we could get into more of what that, the theology behind that eventually, if you saw what happened in terms of the scale and number of urban riots from 65 on, it might not have been that crazy for you to think that. The American military thought we were on the verge of an internal revolution. So for these people, the fact that the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act went through, it wasn't a deterrent. It was actually because of the sort of ancillary agitation that happened when justice wasn't delivered for people of color outside of the South it was actually fuel for their warped idea of what was supposed to happen in the United States. And Killing King was at the center of that prophecy, so to speak, Okay. that agenda. And, and, and I, from my understanding, this is when um, King started someone, um, and, and I can't think of the gentleman's name, but someone had shown him a book, and there was a, in this book it was uh, on Vietnam. And Vietnam War had been going on for years, and it got to the point where thousands and thousands of uh, Americans were dying. People's kids were being sent over there, and you know, during you know, through the draft, uh, a lot of African Americans obviously were drafted and died over there, uh, as well as others. However, um, I, I, from my understanding, the way that the story went was King saw a book on Vietnam that had photos in it, and it showed some of the pictures of what was really going on over there and how it was bringing um, harm to innocent people in Vietnam. And the country was already in an uproar regarding it because they were ready for us to leave from over there and so many people were dying. And he started speaking out on that and that got some people's attention. Is, is, is that correct? So what you're dealing with is King has a twofold mission, uh, sort of, so to speak, after 65 and the Voting Rights Act. Okay. And much of it is focused in the North. And the two-fold mission, many people separate them, but they're actually, and if you listen to King's words, they're closely connected. Okay. Um, the one that's the most immediate is the need for economic justice in the United States. Right. The war on poverty for him was not nearly adequate to the task at hand in the United States. He was looking for a threefold increase in social spending in the United States. 
And where the Vietnam War comes in, first off, it, it, it runs counter to his conscience on issues involving nonviolence. And he had never been a supporter of any war, and including Vietnam. The fact that he might get additionally agitated by seeing how badly it went off is not surprising. But the other thing that factors in is King sees the connection between the two, which is if you're spending hundreds of billions of dollars on the Vietnam War, that's the hundreds and billions of dollars that should be going, in King's mind, towards the war on poverty instead. And so as 67 approaches, especially, King starts taking on a dual, and he had always been, again, and in quiet ways and maybe not as quiet ways opposed to the Vietnam War, but he becomes very vocal against the Vietnam War. And it's in the context of his overarching goal, which becomes by December of 67, the Poor People's Campaign. And so, yes, there were people who were upset that Martin Luther King, especially Lyndon Johnson, who had been largely on King's side for the civil rights movement, it's a little bit of a mixed or uneven or uneasy relationship. But that relationship went very sour as a result of King turning against the Vietnam War. And additionally, people within the civil rights movement did not like that King was turning against a war that was being, people forget, initiated by liberal Democrats who had been on the side of the civil rights movement before. But King wasn't going to compromise his values and his conscience just to make uneasy alliances with white liberals. Mm. Um, so, but the, the important thing I want to add, though, about that is frequently when people talk about the King assassination, they, they focus a lot of attention on the Vietnam War. What they often forget is by January of 68, we have the Tet Offensive. By March of 68, Lyndon Johnson wasn't the, possibly the most, amb- and this is saying a lot, possibly the most ambitious human being we've ever had in the Oval Office, decides on the advice of people around him to not even pursue a second term in office. Right. And that is because of the failure of the Vietnam War. So you start looking, and, and, and I did this, and tracking King, without question for much of 67, uh, he was talking about the war as much, if not more, than he was talking about economic justice. But that's shifting by the spring of 1968 when he gets killed because the writing's on the wall. Both candidates for office are are at least giving voice, Nixon is a tricky cat, to the idea that something has to be done to scale down or wind down the commitment to Vietnam. So the folks who... Again, look at the Vietnam War as the motive for killing King. It doesn't make sense. You've already lost the biggest backer of the Vietnam War there was, Lyndon Johnson, right. to the political environment opposed to the war. The military, whom people often cite as this is the group that just cannot take Martin Luther King's anti-war agitation, they're at the same time just as it's not more concerned about domestic civil unrest. And 
yes, it's a little bit of presentism looking at the past through the window of the present, but not really. Mm -hmm. You would be crazy in 1968 if your concern was domestic civil unrest and you had paid any attention to what had happened in the last four years when it came to urban unrest. You would be nuts to say, we've got to kill Martin Luther King. Because just a rumor of non-Martin Luther King folks, everyday black folks getting beaten or killed by police, much less actual instances, which happened too, right. started days of urban rioting. In the case of King, the first, if you look at the attempts on his life, they frequently started riots, just the attempts. So if your worry is a domestic revolution, and it was a worry of the Pentagon and the State Department, the last thing in the world you're going to do is organize an assassination of Martin Luther King. Hmm. You could convince me in 64 and 63, we get into that, but in 67 and 68, you would have to be completely oblivious to the factors that cause racial turmoil in the country if you're somebody who's willing to kill King while you're at the same time deathly afraid of widespread revolutionary violence inside the United States. Now that's interesting. That is a very, very interesting take because I'm, I'm loving the way you're piecing this together for myself and for the listening audience because what happens is there's so much information and data out there, it gets confusing. You know, um, but I can understand if you put yourself the way that you laid it out, if you put yourself back then in that, in, you know, in the sixties, you know, with the Vietnam war going on. Um, yep. Yeah, and I remember, um, seeing documentary documentaries on, uh, the riots, um, just a number of different things. And now you have, you know, Lyndon Baines Johnson to your point, who is no longer seeking a term. How did the government start coming into into play? Because I've heard and I've, I've seen in, in different things that I've researched, you had the government. Well, we know J. Ever, J. Edgar Hoover uh, was a big piece. He hated King. He despised King. Can you talk a little bit about that and what role did he play, even if you want to go back a little bit earlier um, when this first started? What made him so, so obsessed with King? Well, there's there's a couple of things. Um, the 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 surface level thing, which was in many ways just a front and a pretext for Hoover, was the idea that he saw King as being sympathetic to communists. Okay. Um, and there were some people in King's entourage who had some connections there, but there's a couple of other things. One, many people say that, that a lot of Hoover's enmity towards a lot of different people in government had to do with his own psychosexual thought process about other people. Um, but the, one of the biggest things with King that gets ignored is that King was not afraid to criticize the FBI and their investigation of civil rights cold cases. Well, now they're cold cases but civil rights, racial crimes in the early 60s, King would openly and 
we now know even more than King realized, justifiably, go after them for not resolving these cases, not doing enough to settle these cases. And that infuriated Hoover to the point that Hoover stopped providing protection to King. Uh, well, I shouldn't say stop providing protection. Stop giving uh, security warnings to King as of 64 and 65. He would call the local police. That was how he got away with it. Of course, if you knew anything about the local police in places where King's life most likely in danger, mm-hmm. the police were probably just as much likely to be a part of that threat against King as any local citizen was. So telling them and not telling King's entourage, that's real bad. Right. And Hoover went so far as to um, doctor up a fake letter that's purported to be from people within King's organization, but was really from the FBI, and send King and his family recordings that are supposedly of King engaged in an extramarital dalliance and encouraged King to commit suicide. And that's 65. The thing people have to understand, though, is by 67 and 68 especially, Hoover's efforts against King and Martin Luther King's overarching reputation inside the United States has already taken a dive, in large part because King is not willing to compromise on things like the Vietnam War. Mm-hmm. So King, for instance, falls off of the list of the most admired Americans by 67 and 68. If you look at polls, a large number of white folks thought of him as an agitator. And then, and this is going to be important later for our discussion, a vocal part of even the African-American community didn't think of him as an agitator, but thought of him as not being militant enough. And King's sort of, he was still a prestigious figure, but he had taken, his reputation had taken quite a lump. And so if you go to one of the most famous documents that often get cited to try and implicate Hoover, the so-called Fear of a Black Messiah document, Mm -hmm. and you read it, and you read it carefully. First off, the idea that on paper, J. Edgar Hoover would put down, uses the word um, neutralize. We know what he meant by neutralize in a lot of other documents, and that was using the media to plant negative stories on King. But even if you take the idea that somehow he's going to drop a nod and a wink in written material to try and kill somebody, he cites three people as the potential black messiah in 1968. And this is the month before King gets killed. Elijah Muhammad, mm-hmm. Stokely Carmichael, and Martin Luther King. What people forget is who he ultimately says is the threat and is the potential black messiah. It's not King. It's Stokely Carmichael. Which is consistent, I think, with where the currents of the African-American community were actually heading in 1968. Mm -hmm. King was losing influence. Carmichael and black nationalism was gaining influence. So that's... And and by the way, they never killed Stokely Carmichael. Um, And again, I don't neutralize... We know what neutralize meant. 
in a lot of other documents. And it meant using the myriad of newspaper sources that that Hoover had to plant, put out dirt on everybody, not just king, politicians, presidents, rock stars. Hoover would use his media contacts and he'd just try and ravage your reputation with rumor and innuendo. And he was doing that in 1968. And in fact, the Poor People's Campaign was on its, was in a very precarious place in the weeks leading up to Martin Luther King's death. It wasn't guaranteed at all that it was going to be pulled off with, as a success. And in fact, we know when it actually did get put into place, for all its good intentions, it was largely a dud. Um, so, again, I mean, I have as little respect for Jagger Hoover as you could possibly imagine, but I don't believe he had anything to do with Martin Luther King's assassination, certainly not directly. We can go into, later on, the degree to which perhaps they could have prevented what eventually happened and failed to do that. In fact, that's a key part of my narrative mm-hmm. about what happened in the King's assassination. Okay. Um, but there you go. I, you get me talking, I could talk a long time. <laughs> it's okay. It's okay. This is this is awesome information. So J. Ev- we, we know J. Edgar Hoover. Um, I had even uh, heard that the, the, the letter that you're referring to when he said that in the tapes where he said he was in an extramarital affair, from my understanding, uh, Coretta Scott King, um, he, I guess when the FBI came to visit her, she said that you can send this type of information. And if, you know, she said that this movement at the time, uh, the civil rights movement, was bigger than her marriage. Um, so I guess that just goes to show you the, the, the depth in which and how big that movement was during that time. And so, sure, um, and yeah, how important Scott King was to the movement doesn't get enough credit for everything she did and she sacrificed. I mean, if she could you imagine what would have happened in 65 when King was at the peak of his influence, if Coretta Scott King said, heck with this, I'm going to get a divorce. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not 100% sure she ever fully believed some of the stuff that was said and sent to her. And she was, you know, she has every right to her skepticism, too. So, right. Um, but she was not going to waver. And I know from talking with people who talked with King before he died, he was every, he was very confident that the the FBI was willing to unleash virtually everything, every rumor, every innuendo, and maybe some true stuff, whatever they could on him. Uh, and he told someone I know in the civil rights movement, uh, I don't care. Right. And if I go, basically, if I get destroyed in this whole thing, the movement will go on without me, and I'm willing to take that risk, which is amazing when you think about it because I would argue that for someone like King, who was under constant threat of death his whole entire uh, political career, so to speak, and did not waver even though he was, that his 
uh, reputation and his integrity were more important to him than his life. But he was even willing to put that on the line to advance the cause of economic and social and racial justice. Yeah, that is... That and how is... many people would be doing I always say to people, when they bring up, oh, didn't King have affairs, etc., etc., I always tell, I always say to them, okay, so imagine your darkest, most embarrassing secret, and you tell me if you'd be willing to put it out there for everybody to hear, risk putting it out there for everybody to hear, to accomplish something for other people. Um, most people don't answer the question because I think they know what the answer is. <laughs> That's right. Right, and, and and King and King was to me. After all my research, I and he was my hero before this whole thing. Uh, he came out looking even better mm-hmm. when it was all said and done to me. Yeah, and it's it's uh, it's interesting because you talk about you know what Hoover was doing, you know his tactics, and he you know people have to understand that this was not just done um, through King. He did this with uh, political figures. He did it with the Kennedys. Um, he did it with Malcolm X. Actually, there's one that I saw on YouTube where there is a recording of Malcolm X, the FBI, after he had left the Nation of Islam. Uh, they came to him trying to get him to talk about things that were going on within the Nation of Islam, and Malcolm refused. So this isn't anything new, these type of tactics uh, that were being used back then. Um, you know, obviously, you know, there are other ways that they can listen to us yeah, these days. This will probably get me on a list. He's one of the most corrupt figures in American history, and his name is on the FBI building. Yep. And his name is on the FBI building because he was FBI director for like 60 years. But he was FBI director for 60 years because no one would fire him because he was using the FBI to blackmail people in power. So, you know, we want to make a case that, well, he, he helped push through the FBI crime lab. Okay, so put his name above the FBI crime lab. Take it off the building. Right. I agree. Um, that's, that's neither here nor there. That's my, Your own um, opinion. my soapbox there. That's okay. That's okay. Um, so let's let's move this forward. So as these things progress, so we, we talked about what it was like, right, during that time, what led up to, we're well, not to the assassination yet, but what led, what was leading up to it. Turmoil, the Vietnam War, unrest you know across many cities um you know people still not getting equal rights we talked about the j edgar hoover piece where hoover we know is is corrupt basically and he's utilizing his power to manipulate and try to control what he deems to be uh people that are messiahs um now we are moving forward my understanding was king decided to come to Memphis because of the uh, of a garbage strike is is that correct? So, so his situation, and this gets to the poor people's campaign. Okay, King wasn't supposed to really take sort of a detour to the sanitation worker strike in Memphis. He was trying to organize the poor people's campaign, and it was struggling, but he was eventually convinced to go. And the first time he went, in the middle of March, the, 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 what was a peaceful protest degenerated into some violence. And at that point, King said, 
I can't. I have to come back to Memphis because we're about to launch a major nonviolent march to Washington D.C. from a walk from Mississippi to Washington D.C. for the Poor People's Campaign, and the country must be convinced, especially because we're scrambling for resources, we're scrambling for people to join. The country must be convinced that it's going to stay nonviolent, and of course, King principally was obviously wanted it to stay nonviolent. So he said, I've got to go back to Memphis, and I've got to show the country and the movement that nonviolence can still work. So he comes back. And as he's coming back, he gets an injunction thrown on him to to try and stop the march. Mm-hmm. And he's again trying to rally the community there in in Memphis, not just behind the sanitation workers' strike, but behind what would eventually be the Poor People's Campaign. And while he's doing this, what he doesn't realize, or to some extent he actually did realize when we get to the mountaintop speech, is people are, the, the people that I'm investigating they're they're gearing up for him. They've been following him around. They've been tracking his movements. And they're no longer willing to try and wait for him to come to them. They're, will, they're about to take matters to him. Mm. Uh, and that's sort of where we get in, in Memphis. Because, in fact, as I'll explain if we have the time, the... Memphis was just the, one of many attempts on King's life sponsored by people who bought into the ideology that I've been describing. We call it Christian identity, uh, and I can go into more depth on what it is. And, and the key thing here is, is that they've been watching the civil rights movement, too, and they've seen events that King thought were going to be nonviolent become violent. Mm-hmm. And they've seen the emergence of Stokely Carmichael. And they've seen riot after riot after riot. And what they see is there's only one person left in their minds who's still an influential voice for nonviolence, and that's King. If they could get rid of King, and I'm not saying this is you know, well-thought-out plan. I'm not saying it worked. I'm saying this is what was going through their minds. Mm-hmm. If they can get rid of King, and they were thinking this way for years, they can create a cycle of violence between the right-wing whites, and, and they believed eventually the entire white community of America, or Christian white community of America, versus the black nationalists and black militants on the other side, and there'd be no one like King to stop that particular conflict from escalating into an out-and-out race race war. And so they're seeing everything, the military seeing everything Jagger Hoover's seeing, they're seeing the same stuff because it was playing out in public. Right. And that is why King has become what one person called the ultimate prize. 
And he had been for a few years, but in 68 more than ever. Okay. So give give us the mindset of these of these white Christians that you're referring to, so everybody can understand what their thought what their thought process thought process was. Okay, so the name of the ideology or the theology is called Christian identity, and I think anybody out in the audience who knows their Christianity will recognize that just like Salafi jihadists pervert Islam. Mm-hmm. Christian identity terrorists, I call them essentially jihadists in another in another book of mine, pervert Christianity, and, and here's how they do it. The first thing they do is they retell the story of the book of Genesis. And in that retelling, instead of there being two sexual relate or, or instead of there being one sexual relationship in the Garden of Eden between Adam and Eve, which produces one bloodline. They sort of conjure up, because anyone familiar with the book of Genesis, you'd struggle like I did to try and find where this could possibly be justified. They conjure up a second relationship between Eve and the serpent. Hmm. And even the serpent's relationship, if you know your metaphors from the book of Genesis, that would be a conjugal or actually an intimate relationship between Eve and the devil. Mm-hmm. Both sexual relationships produce a bloodline. The bloodline of Seth is the, is the bloodline of the true white European chosen people. The bloodline of Eve and the serpent, that creates what we call Jews, but what they say are imposters. In fact, they argue that Jewish people, the people that we would call Jewish people nowadays, are really, literally the offspring of Satan. Hmm. Oh. And so where do people of color figure in? People of color are not fully human either. In their telling, in the book of Genesis, people of color come from uh, unholy relationships, so to speak, between human beings and the quote-unquote beasts of the field, producing humanoids. Mm-hmm. which would be people of color. And so what you have, if you trace that down and through their theology, it goes through a partial flood in Noah, gets the weird stuff during the time of Jesus, etc., is to a 2,000-year, or a little bit less, cosmic conspiracy between—actually, it's a little bit more—between where whereby— Antichrist Jewish demonic offspring manipulate people of color into a cosmic conflict with the quote-unquote true chosen people, white Europeans. And so if you flash forward to the last book of the Bible, to the book of Revelations, where for many conventional Christians, even, it's it's supposed to foretell the end of the world and the second coming of Christ. Right. The battle of Armageddon, the final battle, is a race war. It is white Europeans, the so-called good guys, versus Jewish-led people of color, the bad guys. And Jews and, and, the, and, the, and the white Europeans are prophesied to win. In the 
with a few other sort of idiosyncrasies and interpretation, idiosyncratic interpretations, what the people we, I study, whose theology had existed basically since the end of World War II, what they're ultimately seeing is a world in which the signs of the so-called end times are all around them. The rise of communism, the, um, the, uh, the civil rights movement, the urban rioting, but they believe that they have a role to play in accelerating the end times. And so they strategically and tactically make use of violence as a means of fomenting racial antagonism, which they believe will lead to a cycle of violence and retribution that will ultimately involve, result in the holy race war mm-hmm. that they believe will end the world as we know it and usher in a the millennium, which for them is a thousand years of reign of the of basically the white race. Okay. The white European race. And see, I never understood so, that. Yeah. Uh, well, it's very poorly understood, and the reason why is that scholars have missed it because the people inside who really embraced this ideology found themselves with a big problem on their hands entering the 50s. And that was that the people in the Ku Klux Klans around America by no means were they fans of Jewish people. Right. But their antagonism towards Jewish people was largely rhetorical of in the conventional plans. People should think for a second. It was terrible when Robert Bowers did what he did in that synagogue in Pittsburgh mm-hmm. with 11 deaths. But take a step back and think about what it means that up until 2018, that was the largest mass killing of Jewish people in the history of the country. There is not a large or long or well-established history of anti-Jewish actual violence in this country. There is a long and established tradition of anti-black violence in this country. Right. So what these people in Christian identity were doing they were marching in in the late 1940s and 1950s into Klan groups, and they were saying stuff like, yeah, Hitler didn't do enough. We need to kill more Jews. And the people in these groups are like, yeah, we don't really like Jews that much, but are you paying attention? Look at the blacks. They're agitating for their civil rights. Why do you want violence against Jews? Direct your violence against the people we've always directed our violence against. Directed against black folks, right? Mm-hmm. And this created a problem for the people in the Christian identity. They were some of them were literally thrown out of clan groups because they were too anti-Jewish. And so it's at that point they make a calculation, which is they're better off trying to commandeer, so to speak, the the anti-black anger and the history of anti-black violence associated with the Ku Klux Klan, but especially now with the 
Southern sort of counter-revolution against the civil rights movement, and having those mass numbers of people who want to protect the so-called Southern way of life, and keeping quiet about their religious and anti-Jewish agenda, and simply go along for the ride while they go after blacks. And, of course, they don't like blacks either, or people of color, so it's not like it's a major, you know, compromise on their part. They favor violence against black targets, too. What they're looking for is opportunities to try and turn it, and turn it, it being the Southern resentment of what they think will ultimately resentment all across the country, mm-hmm. into something that will ultimately go after both blacks and Jews. And they, they have their moments where they try and go after Jewish targets, but for the most part, they keep quiet. Many of them, you hate to say it, are very smart and very cagey, and they become, in many cases, leaders of some of these racist groups. And at the top, and I have, I mean, people might think I'm just spouting this off. I have quotes from these folks where they say stuff like, the everyday Klansman is just a redneck. I've got to manipulate them for my agenda. And that's what they did. They, they, they were going to use the Southern counter-revolution, and, the, and even afterwards, even after it kind of failed, they were going to use it in their minds as get these people riled up against blacks, and then that would eventually lead to the race war that they're talking about, because in their mind, the civil rights movement was a Jewish conspiracy anyway. Eventually, it's going to lead there. Wow. So all these scholars, all these scholars, if you read them, you'll see that they all acknowledge that this idea, ideology that's virulently racist, anti-Semitic, and pro-violence starts in 1945. But they'll tell you that there's no actual violence associated with it until the 1980s. What was happening for 35 years? What I established in Killing King, but really also in America's Secret Jihad, mm-hmm. is they were there all along. They were simply absorbing, infiltrating, manipulating conventional Klan groups to do, and other racist organizations, without expressly and openly talking about their anti-Jewish and religious mindset gotcha i always wondered um because you know in in you read or you see it on tv you know they talk about you know jews and then you see in movies where you know they'll like uh one of the one of my favorite movies and it's 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 a part of history um in mississippi burning where um the one of the young uh voter uh registers um in mississippi one of them were jewish and you know one of the guys that killed him said something to him in the movie and i always wondered what was that connection because to your point it makes sense you don't hear them talking about it a lot there weren't a lot there wasn't a lot of violence against jewish people so you know you i couldn't i couldn't put two and two together but you just made that perfectly clear for me well, here's all you need to know. The guy who planned the Mississippi burning murders, Sam Bowers, was a devout follower of Christian identity. Mm. He didn't run around talking about it. He was very unfortunately wily. 
And one of the things he's quoted as saying after that happens is, this is the first time we've taken it to the Jews. I'm paraphrasing. Mm. And, and in another document I have, you know, not long after, he, he says, I'm, I'm paraphrasing again, hey, fellow clan guys, we could be a anti-N-bomb clan, or we could go after the Jews. Why don't we go after the Jews? And they once again said, what, are you crazy? You know, I get you know, we need to go after the people who are coming down by the hundreds for Freedom Summer. Yes, some of them were Jews. But the point is, he could never fully get his group until later to really embrace the Christian identity movement. And that was in 67 and 68. Hmm. And not surprisingly, what starts happening in 67 and 68, the people that Bowers, his, his sort of elite group of terrorists, so to speak, they start going after both Jewish and black targets. Hmm. Okay. And, and, and it's, a, it's a wave of anti-Jewish violence that almost is forgotten. But it's a perfect illustration of the influence of, of Christian identity theology on one particular person who was very cagey about how he tried to go about manipulating his own clan members, who he had a lot of contempt for, um, to advance his own ulterior motives. Gotcha. Gotcha. Now, you just mentioned uh, Bowers. Now, let's let's head back now that we understand what that ideology is and what that description of of. of of uh, that group of people, what their thoughts were and where they were at. Um, back in Memphis, I've heard a couple of different things. I've heard of uh, the name that you just mentioned, and then I've heard also that there was a conspiracy amongst the Italian mob as well as the what they called the Dixie Mafia. Do you, can you can you elaborate on that a little bit for for us? Okay, Dixie Mafia is going to be very important here. Okay, important to to, to separate them from the Italian Mafia. Okay, so there's a whole other strand. There's there's like basically three basic theories, broadly speaking, of what happened to King. Maybe four if you want to separate the FBI out from the national security state. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I've already tried to make the point that it doesn't make any sense for the national security state, and it really doesn't make much sense for Hoover. Right. So the other two are, are the are the are the mafia, and then white supremacists, and we're going to argue with white in favor of white supremacists. But the mafia theory, it has these elements here and there, where a witness here comes up, or a witness there comes up, and it seems to point to a guy named Carlos Marcello yep. and his sort of out offshoot sort of sub-mafia dons, right? So he's the head of the mafia in the Delta region and then the Italian mafia, the Sicilian mafia. And then he has, like, you know, people in the Memphis who run the mafia there. Um, and, and there is some stuff that points in that direction, but if you dig deep, what you find out are a couple of things. Okay. First off, uh, it would have been crazy for Carlos Marcelo to try and kill Martin Luther King in 1967 for a number of reasons. First off, there was an investigation into the K-12 
Kennedy, in Kennedy assassination going on in New Orleans, which is Carlos Marcello's home base, right? By a district attorney by the name of Jim Garrison. Yes, sir. Now Garrison wasn't heavily Garrison wasn't heavily focused on on the on the Sicilian mafias being behind JFK's death, but other people like broadcasters for MS, for NBC News were. So he was under already being investigated and. Long story, we could go back and forth on him and King, uh, him on Kennedy assassination, but he's already under the microscope by people for what he might have done for the the Kennedy assassination. Right. Two, more than being under the microscope, he was actually on trial at that very moment for assaulting an FBI agent as of 1967. So you got to believe that Carlos Marcello, while he's literally in a courtroom, being tried, and while NBC News is investigating for the Kennedy King, the, the, the Kennedy assassination, has the components to put a hit out on Martin Luther King. And what do the theories out there say? It's not because he's like some arch racist. It's because somebody has offered him a bounty, like two hundred thousand dollars. Carlos Marcello, I found this out. He was making tens of millions of dollars off of the heroin trade into the port of New Orleans. Hmm. $200,000 to him was nothing. He's not going to take $200,000 while he's under intense federal scrutiny, scrutiny by the NBC News, and go after Martin Luther King. And so where where does some of this evidence come from? Because Carlos Marcello, was staring at prison. New Orleans was a city that had a couple of competing criminal factions. One was Dixie Mafia, and the other one was a newly burgeoning Black Mafia. And so what happened was people started planting stories, especially the Black Mafia folks. Mm Mm-hmm implicating Carlos Marcello, and there's evidence of this. I'm not just making it up. They're implicating Carlos Marcello. Why? Because if you can associate Carlos Marcello with the killing of one of the most beloved African Americans in the United States, then it's going to make your life in a city that is majority black, that is the home base for Carlos Marcello, it's going to make your ability to move in on Carlos Marcello's territory while he's weakened, while he's being uh, charged in federal court, it's going to make it easier for you to take over his criminal enterprise. Got you. So they were pulling the stories is what I'm trying to say. Mm-hmm. The Dixie Mafia is a different story, and, and that's really important to talk about. Okay. The term Dixie Mafia is a really poor choice of words because they're neither Dixie. There was some Dixie, Mm -hmm. right? There was was sort of an axis of the Dixie Mafia that ran in Alabama and Louisiana and Florida, right? And Tennessee especially. Mm -hmm. But they're also heavily concentrated in the Great Plains and the Midwest. So they're not just Dixie, they're like Dixie and Great Plains Mafia would be a better way of reference. And they're also 
nothing like the mafia. The mafia refers to a hierarchical organization where you've got, like, goons on the ground, God, it might get me killed, versus people up the chain until you hit a godfather, right? Right. And there's, this, and there's like, these almost weird, almost sort of contradictory sort of rules of the criminal game. Mm-hmm. Like, you don't kill after if you're a regular Italian mafia. You don't kill people's family members, and you don't kill law enforcement officers. Right. But everybody else is fair, right? The Dixie Mafia was, did not have a hierarchy. They were co-equal members. And so, and they were, they'd be like, almost like a gang, but with no boss. And what happened was, is in the 40s and 50s, because of both the, the rise of federal prison system and the rise of the interstate highway system and the widespread availability of phones, what you start to have is criminals now have a much greater ability to plan crimes almost on the fly and carry them out in a week or two. So what would happen is, is you'd have a group of people who were loosely associated with each other. They may have served time together and become buddies, say, in Leavenworth, right? Mm-hmm. And they get a group of people who might have served time with them, sort of peripheral people who might have served time with them, say, in um, you know, a different federal prison. And they find out that there's a safe with a lot of jewelry in someone's home in Tennessee. And they hop out of, they go on the road in, from Oklahoma and they show up in Tennessee. And somebody in the group's a safe cracker. And somebody in the group is a um, getaway guy. And a couple of people in the group are muscle. And they rob that home. And it becomes really profitable. Even planes factor into this. They get on planes and they go from state to state. And they're much more. They're, they have. They don't have anything like the code that the that the regular mafia has. Okay. They're more than happy to kill law enforcement officers, and they're happy to kill your family, as long as there is money at the light at the end of the tunnel. If there's money involved, they're willing to do virtually, as long as there's enough of it, mm-hmm. they're willing to do virtually any of that stuff. And they become the people who are sort of the mechanics for what, for the King assassination. Because the problem for the Klan in 67 and 68 is the FBI is finally really cracking down on them. Mm-hmm. So if they want to do something bold, like kill Martin Luther King, they probably need people who aren't under nearly as much scrutiny to pull off the actual deed. Now, maybe they'd be willing to show up and blow some stuff up. I'm not putting that out of the question, because they want to rile people up. Mm -hmm. But when it comes time to who's going to actually kill somebody, the, the Dixie Mafia has professional killers. So... Our ultimate theory is, is that that's what happened. And again, we're not making up. We have evidence for this that you could read in the book Killing King. Eventually, after trying and failing to do it themselves, the Klan 
re-engages, because they tried once before, they re-engage with the Dixie Mafia and go after King one more time using professional hit people. Professional mm-hmm. criminals. And and sort of that's the the sort of broad outlines of the story that we're telling. Okay. Now, how how did they go about orchestrating that? Who who are some people that you've researched and, and found that that said, "Hey, this is we're going to move this thing forward." And I know to what you had said earlier, uh, your point earlier was that was not the first time you know there was an attempt. And I saw some film as well where Dr. King was saying uh, he was marching somewhere, and there was a gunshot that had went out, and he said the only reason that he said they tried to assassinate me then. He said the only reason that they didn't get me was because I was so surrounded. You know, he was surrounded by people, so he was sort of in the middle. Our book documents a number of attempts on King's life that were very serious. And time and time again, people think sometimes get confused by this. King didn't have Secret Service protection. King didn't have military intelligence protection. The police in half these cities probably wanted him dead. Right. So what saved King was the fact that he was, he had, not intentionally, I don't think, you know, I think it was just a sort of character trait. I have the same problem. His timing wasn't always predictable. He'd be late for things. Mm-hmm. He'd stay too long at things. He'd wind up canceling a trip at the last minute. On many occasions, that saved his life. There were people who had planted a bomb that would have gone off when he was in his room, but he stayed later at a meeting. These kinds of things happen more often than you think for King. And so um, in terms of surrounding, we document that people in Christian identity folks wanted to kill King right after the bombing of the 16th Street Baptist Church that killed four girls. Oh, wow. they died for a week, but they couldn't get to him because he had too many people around him. But this wasn't like bodyguards. This was, you know, like, you know, like Ralph Abernathy people. Right, his entourage. But in many other instances, King didn't show up. King was late. King had to cancel, or he would have been a goner um, in sixty, no, three and sixty-four and sixty-five. We get up. I think the nine or ten plot doesn't like. And so what about the, what does this mean for the people who are trying to kill them? What it means to them is, is that they learn over time that they have to be a whole lot more flexible if they want to kill them. Mm-hmm. And a whole lot cooler if they want to kill them. If they're just going to wait for him to show up in the Shoba, they're going to fail. And they try, I mean, for a while what they do is they try and commit provocative acts of violence, hoping that King will show up. They killed somebody in 1966, Ben Chester White. Not because Ben Chester White was an activist in the civil rights movement, but because, and we only found this out in the 90s, but because they thought that if they killed Ben Chester White, that Martin Luther King would detour out of the campaign, march against fear with uh, James Meredith, and come into their shooting zone, and they could kill him. And he, he did not do that. So 
in reaching out to criminals, which they had done once before, and we document this in our book, and they, if you really want to sort of drill down, the key player is the guy I mentioned earlier, it's Sam Bowers, and it's the White Knights of the Ku Klux Klan of Mississippi. They're the ones who are trying to figure out how to make this work. And they're the ones who ultimately offer the bounty out to, with the help of other white supremacists in raising the money, mm-hmm. to Dixie Mafia people to try and go after um, King. Okay. And in our book, and you can read it, we actually have somebody, and he had no idea. We had to you know, reverse engineer all of this stuff with documents and newspaper accounts and interviews. Mm-hmm. Um, but he was inside that plot, and he actually tried to warn the FBI about it. Wow. And, 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 and he did. I mean, we have the documents. He warned them about it. But the FBI loved completely his report, and then we believe later on did not take seriously other reports that also were emanating from informants inside the White Knights of the Ku Klux Klan of Mississippi that would have probably been able to stop King's murder. Wow. And so, um, and we document that. In fact, something came out after our book went to, went to press that confirmed something that we had been speculating about for a very long time, that a particular individual was a very high-level informant for the FBI who was in the White Knights of the Ku Klux Klan of Mississippi. And all indications are this guy was trying to feed the FBI information on the plot against King while he himself was kind of partaking in it so he can inform on it. And you can imagine what the implications would be if that got out. Yeah. Right, that somebody that the FBI had been running as an informant told them about a plot against King, and they didn't stop it, and that guy happened to be involved. Wow, that is a lot. Now, wow, that is just crazy. Let's talk about this yeah. because in history, if you Google assassination of Martin Luther King. We we all know what comes up. James Earl Ray was known as the uh, is known has went down in history as um, the person that assassinated King. But thanks to people like yourself and others, we know that there was some type of conspiracy. And in this case, in your case, what you're explaining to us is this was a a, a group of murderers pushed by Christian ideology to uh, with the plot to kill King. Now, how does James Earl Ray who for our listening audience, was an escaped convict, um, ends up in Memphis and gets involved because a lot of people have come up with what you have said in your book, which is he had some something to do with it, but he was not the actual shooter or killer. How does James Earl Ray end up in this situation? Is he tied to the Dixie Mafia in some type of way? Well, First off, I would say our book offers a rather nuanced take on his role in the actual shooting. Mm-hmm. I don't want to give too much away, but it really helps resolve a lot of outstanding questions about things that seemingly are conspiratorial, and yet things that seemingly 
are poorly or thought out or poorly planned out that happen especially immediately after the shooting. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but back to James O'Ray, I'll just say we're not nearly as sympathetic to him as a lot of other people are. Okay. He might not have been connected directly to the Dixie Mafia. you got to remember that the Dixie Mafia, they were a core group of gang people who would take on additional people. Um, they would take on, the Dixie Mafia were a, a gang of people who, you know, the same, say, six or seven people maybe, who would consistently work together. But they would add on people as, as they saw fit to do certain aspects of the crime. Now, we do not believe that James O'Reilly was, was an intended shooter in the Martin Luther King assassination. He was not somebody who you would recruit for that for a lot of reasons. Number one being one of the smartest no background, <laughs> right? No background in 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 you know shooting people, right? You know, from a distance. Mm-hmm. So um, it was a relatively easy shot. We could get to that in another day. But um, if you didn't think that, if you didn't know that there was going to be a relatively easy shot, you wouldn't recruit him. Not to be a shooter. The one thing we know about James O'Reilly is that he was obsessed with money. Not racism. He, you know, there's evidence of racism, but he was born in the South or St. Louis. There's evidence of a lot of racism with a lot of people down there. That doesn't make you like clan level rabid, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. But he was obsessed with money. And we also know that he was in a prison where the bounty offers that we discuss, the kinds of bounty offers, things like it were being circulated. We do not think he escaped prison with the intent of pursuing a bounty on Martin Luther King. But there's evidence that he at least knew about it and that it was in the back of his mind. And when he fails to get out of North America and very randomly shoots down to Birmingham, Alabama, a city he's never been to before. Mm-hmm. Um, what we believe is is he's out searching to try and get himself into a bounty offer on Martin Luther King that can make him a lot of money. Now, the bounty offer that we actually document in our book actually had more than one component to it in terms of who gets paid. There's the big money is for people who actually participate in the shooting. But there's a small sum of money for people who are willing to follow King, track his movements, and report them out. Okay. And at the very least, and I think, again, I don't want to give everything in my book away, at the very least, we believe Ray eventually, and it took a while, it took, at the earliest, December of 1967, and could have been as late as January or February of 1968, Ray finally finds himself integrated into the plot, but as the person who's going to follow King and trace his movements. And we believe that took him all the way to Memphis, and we have a very interesting spin on what happened from there that I'll 
leave a little bit of you're going to want to read about it in the book for the <laughs> for the listening audience. Absolutely, absolutely. You know, but this... it's something that no, it's something that nobody has ever said or put in a book before, and we believe, although it's somewhat speculative, that it makes sense of virtually everything that happened in Memphis and immediately after. Okay. Now, um, as we get ready to, to, to wrap up a little bit, let me ask you this, and you tell me your opinion. Is it just rhetoric? Is it just a you know conspiracy theory? Inside his inner circle, it has been brought up and on numerous occasions that, and I, and I hope this is not something that's in your book. I hope it's not. So, <laughs> But in, in his inner circle, it has been brought up numerous times that Jesse Jackson had some type of involvement within this assassination. People say this all the time, and I think it's motivated by... Let me first give you the short answer. I've We have found no evidence whatsoever that anybody in King's entourage had anything to do with the assassination. I'm open, but still... I have not seen a lot of evidence to something related to the chauffeur, but I generally dismiss it. And I think for a lot of people, it rests, and this is part of where we get into what I'm talking about in the book that I think will surprise people, our, our sort of rundown of what happened in Memphis. Mm-hmm. It rests a lot on this presumption that King had to be lured out into the shooting gallery, so to speak, where the assassins were ready for him. I'll just give a little bit of a hint in our book. We don't think the assassination was was meant to go down the way it went down, where it went down. Okay. And and so if you just take it one step further, just because I feel obligated to clear people like like uh, Reverend Jackson. The thought that Martin Luther King just only once randomly stepped out on that on that you know balcony mm-hmm. is incorrect. He went out on that balcony a lot to smoke, for instance, mm-hmm. to talk to people. So if somebody was in the rooming house across the way, for instance, and got the idea in their head that maybe they could kill Martin Luther King, you just had to wait for him to come out again. You didn't have to get somebody to lure him out. He was constantly coming out. Makes sense. So you just wait for your opportunity. You don't need somebody to make the opportunity for you. And that's what almost all of those claims against Jesse Jackson and other people rest on. It's this idea that somehow King had to be lured out so he could be shot by this well-planned shooting conspiracy. But if you don't think the assassination went down the way it was supposed to go down, where it was supposed to go down, then that goes out the window. Gotcha. So there you guys have it. Uh, Mr. Stuart Wexler breaking it down, you know, in his opinion, and he is an expert. Jesse Jackson had nothing to do with the assassination of Martin Luther King. And I tell you, Mr. Wex, you probably heard this, this theory as well. Um, it, they had even broken it down to the point of saying that 
if you look in the pictures, um, Jesse Jackson did not have on uh, a tie, um, and they were supposed to go to like a, a barbecue or something, and they were saying that Dr. King um, had told him that they needed to, you know, put on a, you know, uh, a, a suit and tie. And the reason for that, the claim was, the theory behind it was, so the shooter would know who he's aiming at. The person without the tie is, uh, you know, is the innocent person. So uh, I think you summed that up. That makes much more sense to me of what you're saying uh, than some of these theories. So I like the fact that you, you broke it down for us and, um, you know, still left uh, something for our listening audience so they can go and check out the, the, the book. Um, in closing, Mr. Wexler, what do you want the listening audience to know about um, the King assassination and some of the other projects that you that you uh, are working on currently? The King assassination is actually just maybe the most consequential, certainly the most well-known example of this Christian identity terrorism that I really want to belong into. Maybe we can have future shows on this. I mentioned Robert Bowers mm-hmm. and his shooting of the very good reasons to think, and I'll explain it if we get a show, that Robert Bowers was Christian identity. It has not gone away. Um, if anything, I'm seeing evidence that it's reemerging as a influential ideology, and it's extremely dangerous, not just because it killed King or motivated the killing of a lot of other people. It's extremely dangerous because the difference between a, a, a regular clan group that is open to violence and a group that's influenced by Christian identity ideology or any other uh, perversion of a religious ideology is the person who wants, who's in a regular clan group is typically somebody who has a limited political objective. And the person who's in a religious terrorist organization is hell-bent on trying to change the entire world organizational structure. And the type of violence that you're willing to use for the and the type of targets that you're willing to go after if you're a conventional, what we might call secular terrorist versus a religious terrorist, they're different scales. And so and I, I think they're much more dangerous if you want to create a holy race war than if you simply want to make a statement, for instance. And I'm not saying either of them are good mm-hmm. about, um, you know, a Jewish person using your pool or something like that. There's a big difference between who and what you're willing to do when your mindset's different. Um, so... That I hope maybe in future conversations we could talk about that because, as has been recent news with this one gentleman in the Coast Guard who just got arrested. Yeah, I saw that this morning. Uh, the, the domestic terrorism is it needs to be a real big focus, and the idea that you should go away from it, which is was part of you heard rumblings of at the beginning of the Trump administration. It's also poorly informed, and I'll get to this at a later date, it's partially this misunderstanding about the, the way that these religious terrorists worked in the 50s and 60s 
that can lead somebody to think, oh, well, we can take our feet off the pedal on domestic terrorism now because you have a complete misunderstanding about what did and did not work in the 60s. You have a complete misunderstanding about what did and didn't work in the present. Um, and we'll talk about that hopefully at a later time. But I hope the audience, just to make a long story short, as they listen further and further, they, they become aware of the fact that domestically, domestic terrorism, Christian identity terrorists, oriented terrorists, other very similar groups are still very much with us and are still very, very dangerous. Wow. Oh, definitely. We're definitely going to bring you back and uh, discuss some of those things. Um, you know, one thing is, is this, uh, I told you as we were communicating via email, I, you know, I love the, the civil rights period in history, and I wanted to thank you for coming on and giving us a plethora of, of information um, and discussing, um, you know, your, your book, Killing King, Racial Terrorists, James Earl Ray, and the Plot to Assassinate Martin Luther King. Um, Stuart Wexler, guys, he has uh, come on uh, to discuss with us the killing of Dr. Martin Luther King. He is, uh, has a number of different books. Uh, he and I will be doing some future shows together, hopefully. And also, we're going to put up um, some links so you guys can go and check this book out. We'll put the Amazon uh, links up on the website and get everything updated so that you guys can go and check some of his books out. He has some others and uh, we're definitely, we'd love, Mr. Wexler, if you'll come back uh, to come on to the show, the special edition of Let's Be Honest uh, podcast, uh, Who Really Did It? And uh, this is Frank Styles, And on behalf of Mr. Stuart Wexler, we'll talk to you guys real soon. Thanks so much for tuning in.